Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Lovely AM 950. How are you on this Saturday? How are you? As we've made our way out of Siberia, and now we're just heading to the Ukraine in terms of temperature. Um, But we're heading towards spring. It's coming. It's inevitable. So I'm really thrilled to do that and to say that and to know that. Okay, Um, you know we talk about idealism and idealists on this show, and uh, we've got yet another great show. And by the way, it's an Ellie's Talking Head show. Yes, it is. Um, I don't have a guest to interview this week, uh, so you have me, moi, um, for the next hour, bringing you information about things that will help you, you view the world more compassionately and more critically. I mean, that is certainly the goal. Um, because education is important. So let's start off with our featured idealist, someone who became a household name during the impeachment trial, round two, of uh, Donald Trump. I'm speaking of Congressional Representative Jamie Raskin, who has represented Maryland's 8th Congressional District since 2016. We know of Jamie Raskin, because he was the lead impeachment manager and the primary author of the impeachment article, along with Representative Ted Lieu and uh, David and Representative David Cicilline. Who is Jamie Raskin? It turns out that he's quite the idealist. To start off, um, and I bet many of you didn't know this, Jamie Raskin has a strong connection to Minnesota. His maternal grandfather, that is his mother's father, uh, Samuel Bellman, um, was an attorney and the first uh, Jewish person ever elected to Minnesota's legislature. His maternal grandmother was active in Minnesota's Jewish community and interacted with Bob Dylan's mother, Betty Zimmerman. Uh, Then uh, there were Raskin's uh, Parents. His father, Marcus Raskin, was a staff aide to President John F. Kennedy on the National Security Council. His mother, hold on, uh, was a journalist and a novelist. All in all, wonderful idealistic roots. Jamie Raskin received the gold-plated education that we're so familiar with with our leaders. Harvard undergrad and then Harvard Law School. From there, he went on to be the general counsel for... Uh, Jesse Jackson's National Rainbow Coalition for a couple of years. And then Jamie Raskin went on to represent Ross Perot. Some of you may recall that name. Others of you are like, what's a Ross Perot? But for those of you who recall Ross Perot, you know that he was a third-party candidate in the 1996 presidential election. And Jamie Raskin represented Ross Perot um, in uh, the dispute with the uh, uh, the campaign uh, election people because uh, Perot was excluded from the presidential debates. Um, talking about tilting at windmills. For 25 years, Jamie Raskin was a constitutional law professor at American University in D.C. Um, his wife, Sarah Bloom Raskin, uh, was the Maryland Commissioner of Financial Regulation from 2007 to 2010. When President Obama assumed office, He nominated Sarah Raskin, that would be the wife of Jamie Raskin, to the Federal Reserve Board. And that's a role she held from 2010 to 2014. Then in 2014, Sarah Bloom Raskin assumed the position of Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, something that she held until the Trump administration took hold. In 2016, 
The political bug bit Jamie Raskin, and he ran for Congress in Maryland's 8th Congressional District, a very affluent suburb northwest of D.C. He had eight primary opponents and was outspent heavily. Still, Jamie Raskin uh, garnered 33% of the vote out of those eight candidates. In the general, he went on to trounce um, his Republican uh, opponent by, uh, with a 60% vote in the heavily Democratic district. Um, as, uh, as the campaign was ongoing, this is in 2016, um, Jamie Raskin earned the endorsement of Bernie Sanders' network, Our Revolution, and that of the community organization, People's Action. Uh, so he is a very, he has a very progressive candidate. Once in Congress, Jamie Raskin wasted no time. In 2017, he quickly objected to certification of Donald Trump's election because of Russian interference in the election. Then Vice President Biden, as we've heard, um, overruled that objection and, and a couple of other objections because no senator had joined. In 2018, in unison with several progressive Democrats, Jamie Raskin founded the Congressional Free Thought Caucus with the goal of creating public policy based on, quote, reason, science, and moral values, unquote, and with the goal of separating church from state. In the House, um, Jamie Raskin is the vice chairman of the Committee on House Administration, and he's a member of the Judiciary Committee. I'm sure many of you have heard Jamie um, as he spoke um, during the impeachment proceedings, but I cannot be certain if you understand the timeline. Let me just share that with you. First, I need to tell you that Jamie and Sarah Raskin are parents of three children. One of those children, their youngest, Tommy, committed suicide on December 31st. So just not even two months ago. Tommy Raskin was 25 years old. Less than a week later, on January 5th, Tommy was buried. The very next day, on January 6th, the date on which the electrical, electoral votes were to be counted, Jamie Raskin and his daughter and son-in-law were at the Capitol. You may have recalled that he spoke about that um, during the impeachment proceedings. The insurrection occurred and the three of them had to seek refuge from the insurrectionists. That night, January 6th, this is barely 24 hours after his son was buried, Jamie Raskin started drafting the articles of impeachment. Six days later, House Speaker Pelosi named Jamie Raskin the lead manager for the second impeachment. Before I go, there's one more factoid about Jamie Raskin. He's a cancer survivor. In 2010, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. He subsequently underwent radiation, chemo, and surgery. To end this, I want to share a clip to show you how darn smart I, our idealist Jamie Raskin is. Listen um, as he coins the phrase that will go down in history literally. You know what phrase it is. So hold on. I'm going to play the clip. Senators, this cannot be our future. This cannot be the future of America. We cannot have presidents inciting and mobilizing mob violence against our government and our institutions because they refuse to accept the will of the people under the Constitution of the United States. 
much less can we create a new January exception in our precious, beloved Constitution prior generations have died for and fought for so the corrupt presidents have several weeks to get away with whatever it is they want to do. History does not support a January exception in any way. So why would we invent one for the future? So there you go. January exception, a phrase that will go down in history. Jamie Raskin, true idealist, survivor of the human condition, and damn good lawyer. This is not the last that you will hear of him. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I've got some more stuff for you. I've got a happy story because we need that and some other things. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. I love hearing from listeners. We'll be back in a second. Back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio here. You have me. It's an LE Talking Head show. Sorry. I don't have a guest to interview. You know, this is a tough business, this radio business at times. And on top of everything else that I'm doing, trying to find guests and getting them to respond to you when you send out emails saying, hey, would you be willing to be on my show? Sometimes it gets a little tricky. But you have me and I know some of you. Don't mind that. So there you go. Okay, uh, I want to share something happy because um, my work is about reminding all of us that we are good people. We are. You know, you heard uh, President Biden uh, just this week, uh, I think at the CNN town hall, talk about how the country really isn't as divided as everybody believes. And uh, frankly... I believe that too. I agree with President Biden. My work demonstrates that actually we care about each other a whole lot more than anybody expects. But I've got a happy story here for you. I've got some other stories that maybe not so, but we'll be we'll be all over the place for the rest of the show. But um, uh, this show, this story um, was um, uh, is uh, documented by by a clip on Good Morning America and uh, the. The um, author or producer of the story is Shannon McLellan, and it tells a story about um, a man named Devin Hingston, who's 30 years old, who was driving through Alexandra, Louisiana, when he spotted a young boy playing basketball in his driveway. But as um, Devin got closer, he realized that the boy wasn't using like a regular basketball hoop, but instead was using a trash can as a basketball hoop. So the boy was, was making his shots, but into a trash can and not into a regular, um, what we would expect for basketball hoops. And Hingston, um, he drove by and then he thought, you know what, nah, I'm going to do something about him because um, uh, Devin Hingston is one of those kinds of people that does these random acts of kindness. He doesn't tell anybody about it. Actually, I'm not certain how this got to GMA, 
Good Morning America, but he's not, he doesn't look for credit, okay? Um, so uh, he went and he bought um, a basketball hoop, you know, one of those kinds, you know, that's in a box that you've got to, you know, you've got to put together and erect, but, you know, you go to a sporting goods store and he, he went and got it, okay? And he drove up to the house. He, he didn't know the people at the house. And at that point, he met uh, the eight-year-old. His name is Jeremiah. And then he met uh, the eight-year-old's grandmother, um, Patricia Williams. And, um, and Patricia uh, told uh, Devin that, you know, Jeremiah really loves to play uh, basketball and that um, he plays in a league at their local church and that his hero is LeBron James, okay? Um, according to the grandmother, everywhere that um, little Jeremiah goes, he totes his uh, little basketball. So, um, so uh, Devin drops off this basketball hoop, and, uh, and the rest of the story is just essentially that the stranger took the time to pay attention to what was going on around him, and then took the time to go and, and purchase something out of his own pocket and to give it to this eight-year-old boy, the basketball hoop, um, and just simply not look for any kind of recognition. I think that he was actually not all that crazy about getting the attention from Good Morning America. But uh, I share this story with you because there are random acts of kindness like this going on in our world. Oh, let's just talk about America. In America, all the time. There are. I'm not kidding you. They exist. They happen. We just don't hear about them because Good Morning America doesn't usually throw all these great stories up or certainly you don't hear them on regular live stream news. Um, and so because we only hear the stuff that divides us on the news. And so it's easy to believe that there is not goodness going on in the world. So, but there is. Okay. Having said that, I'm going to pivot now to talk about, um, I've got a historical story and then I have something about contemporary. Well, why don't we go with the historical? So I'm going to give this to you right now. So... This again, another. Uh, this is out of CNN. Um, it's a story by Faith Car um, Karimi, K A R I M I. A story that I saw on February sixth, and it is about a new book um, by an author by the name of Ben Montgomery. The title of the book is "A Shot in the Midnight: Colon, How a Freed Slave and a Confederate Soldier Fought for Justice in the Jim Crow South." It's an incredible story. And the story begins with a man by the name of George Dinning. He had been a formerly enslaved man. And on January 21st, 1897, George Dinning, his wife and 10 children were living in a house in southern Kentucky. And a group of white men falsely accused Dinning of stealing livestock. And they surrounded the house. They had weapons and they wanted George Dinning to come out because it looked like he was going to get lynched. Um, they started firing into the house. Uh, and now remember, George Dinning has his wife and 10 children there. And George Dinning, in fact, he gets uh, wounded in the arm and in the forehead. But George Dinning does something incredible. He gets his gun 
and he fires back at the white men that were attacking his house. Um, and in the process of doing that, he killed one of the white color men, one of the attackers. Um, uh, Dinning and his family, uh, Dinning was arrested. The family home was actually burned down, okay? And then Dinning was, um, he was tried. He was, he was tried for manslaughter um, in uh, Kentucky. And uh, the trial was such that it greatly divided the state. So this is 1897. This is the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Jim Crow is alive and well in 1897. Black people were being marginalized left and right, losing whatever voting rights they had. It divided the state. And so there were lynch mobs that wanted to hang uh, Dinning. And then there were people that were very sympathetic uh, to Dinning. In fact, it got so bad that the governor... A man named William Bradley had to post soldiers at the jail and the courthouse. Ultimately, as you might expect, uh, Dinning was convicted by a jury of 12 white men. And then he was sentenced to seven years in prison. I, I was surprised at how lenient the sentence was in light of everything. However, here's the first twist for you in this story. The first twist is this. Two weeks after the sentencing, the governor of Kentucky, um, pardoned Dinning. The governor, um, he pardoned him, and he kept it secret. He kept it secret for a day, got word to Dinning that he had been pardoned. He kept it secret. because The governor did not want it to get out because he wanted Dinning to have a chance to get out of town, which is exactly what Dinning did. He got out of town. He took a train out of town with his family. And he went 150 miles away to Indiana to get away from this part of Kentucky. And then Denning changed his name to Denning. And I hopefully I'll be able to do that. Denning, okay, he starts to rebuild his life in Indiana. And then Denning does something incredible. He decides he is going to sue the men who had attacked his house that winter night in Kentucky and burned it down and threatened his family. To do that, Denning found a lawyer by the name of Bennett Young, who had been a Confederate soldier. So here's your second twist in this story. The lawyer, Bennett Young, had been a Confederate soldier. He took the case on pro bono, so he didn't charge a Denning for it. And um, they went to trial in Kentucky, they sued the men, sued. So in civil court, they sued the men that had attacked um, Denning's house and his family and who had harmed Denning. And do you know what? They, this, this lawyer, former Confederate soldier lawyer by the name of Bennett Young, he convinced a Kentucky jury to give Denning $50,000. Now, this is $50,000 at like in 18, you know, 98, 99, 50. I mean, can you imagine what, I mean, that is and a ginormous amount of money by today's standards. Even by that standard, there was a ginormous amount of money. And this white-color lawyer who had been a Confederate soldier convinced a jury to give a black man who had shot and killed a white-color man money. Wow. Um, it turns out that the lawyer, Bennett Young, um, was um, somebody who had a soft spot for black people. He had also created an orphanage for black children. Um, he, he represented a lot of black people pro bono. 
However, Bennett Young also had this thing about the Confederacy, and he went around raising money for, for Confederate statues. So, you know, we, we are, we are even always, um, we are a um, complicated set of humans. All of what I've just told you about is the subject of the book that I just uh, gave to you, which, uh, again, the title is A Shot, A Shot in the Midnight, How a Freed Slave and a Confederate Soldier Fought for Justice in Jim Crow South. Um, all of this is that book by uh, Ben Montgomery, who also contacted Denning's family and obtained historical documents to do the book. In an interview with CNN, Montgomery, the author, said that all of the contemporary news about how black men have tragic encounters with law enforcement caused him to want to search for a story with a black male character that didn't end up in tragedy. (laughs) He sure found the story, didn't he? Montgomery um, also highlights the lawyer, as I said, about Bennett Young, about how he was good to black people, but also an advocate for the the Confederacy. Um, Again, complicated humans. And on the question of whether justice was served, um, Montgomery says no, of course. Um, Denning didn't recover much of the judgment from the white color people that he sued and got a judgment against. I mean, they just refused to pay. Um, And of course, um, Denning had lost, he'd lost his farm, he had lost his land and all kinds of things and relationships because he had to move away. Nonetheless, I share this story with you because it is an incredible story of how human spirit can transform people and of how the human spirit for Mr. Denning, formerly enslaved human, was such that he wasn't going to take it and he was actually going to give it back in droves. And he did just that. Check it out, okay? Check out the book. Check out the story on CNN. And um, when we come back from our break, I've got some more stuff to share with you. And eventually I'm working my way to a story about me of something that happened uh, over the last weekend. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio and AM 950. We'll be right back. AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. If you're watching me on Facebook Live, you are seeing I am seat dancing. I am, I am, because, you know, I mean, some days doing this show is kind of like, uh, other days it's like, hey, we're going to just have fun. And that's what I'm doing today. Today is a fun, fun day. And I'm having fun. I am. I'm sharing stories, talking about humans. (laughs) Okay. um, So I want to move on to talk to you about a book. Uh, that is just coming out. It's by a woman named Heather McGee, and uh, all of this that I'm going to talk to you about is um, out of an editorial or an opinion uh, piece in the New York Times that uh, dropped on February 13, 2021, by Heather McGee. She is the author of a brand new book, and this book is titled The Sum of Us, colon, 
what racism costs everyone, and how we can prosper together. That's the title. Okay, it's just coming out. Um, Ellie Krug going to be buying that book. I'm going to be getting it. Hopefully at one of our um, smaller um, independent bookstores. Yes. Okay. Um, so Heather McGee, she's the author, and she starts out her book saying this, quote, over a two-decade career in the white-collar think tank world, I've continually wondered, why can't we have nice things? By we, I mean America at large. As for nice things, I don't picture self-driving cars, hovercraft backpacks, or laundry that does itself. Instead, I mean the basic aspects of a high-functioning society. Well-funded schools, reliable infrastructure, wages that keep workers out of poverty, or a comprehensive public health system equipped to handle pandemics, things that equally developed but less wealthy nations seem to have. Unquote. The premise of what Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, is all about is that um, uh, it's not accidental and not just fiscal conservatism as to why public spending on infrastructure, health care, and other things has gone down. No, she ties it directly to white resentment. You know, the phrase is uh, taxpayers versus freeloaders, makers versus takers. And she goes on and explains um, that all of this is tied to how white-colored people, you know, remember I refer to white people as white color. I've actually used that phrase a couple of times without explaining that, but I've explained it on other shows because most white people don't believe that white is a color and uh, they believe it's normal or base. But she goes on to say that it's about resentment that white colored people have towards people who are not white. Um, and, and that resentment um, translates over to their willingness to fund the common goods. I mean, my show last week where it was where I talked about the common good, where it's not necessarily about, you know, what, what am I going to get selfish, self, selfishly? What am I going to give selflessly to our society? And she, she ties it directly to the civil rights movement. So here's what here's, – I'm going to quote her again. Here's what she says. Uh, quote, the civil rights movement, which widened the circle of public beneficiaries and could have heralded a more moral, prosperous nation, wound up diminishing white people's commitment to the very idea of public goods. In the late 1950s, over two-thirds of white Americans agreed that the now, with the now radical idea that the government ought to guarantee a job for anyone who wants one and to ensure a minimum standard of living for everyone in the country. That's a radical idea today. It was being agreed to by over two-thirds of white Americans in the 1950s. She goes on to say, I'm sorry I interjected, I broke up the quote. She goes on to say, white support for those ideas, okay, of, you know, guaranteeing a job, Minimum standard of living, white support for those ideas nosedive from around 70 to 35 percent from 1960 to 1964 and has remained low ever since. The thesis underlying this is that it's okay if it's all white-colored people who, who get, you know, benefit all of the riches of the country. It's not okay if it's people of other skin colors, other backgrounds, other ethnicities, other countries of origin. 
Um, and, you know, so, and, and she goes on to say that, you know, uh, tax revenue, okay, so the percentage of the country, you know, per, of GDP um, where revenue was derived from tax revenue hit its peak as a percentage of the economy in 1965, okay? Now, and she goes on to say, I'm quoting her again, America's per capita governing spending is near the bottom among industrial countries. Our roads, bridges, and water systems get a D-plus from the American Society of Civil Engineers. Unlike our peers, we don't have high-speed rail, universal broadband, mandatory paid family leave, or universal child care, unquote. And, um, and, and she shares the story about how, you know, the civil rights movement came along and, and how towns thousands of, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of towns in the South decided rather than to integrate their swimming pools, okay, you know, allow little black kids and little white color kids to be in the same pool together, they shut the pools down. They just shut them down so that integration couldn't happen. And her, and her thesis is, well, when you do that, okay, that reflects a mindset that you are, that you're willing to forego um, things that are necessary as a way to kind of give it to people, you know, as a way of, you know, kind of, you know, to turn the knife into people who are not white color. Um, and, uh, you know, and she goes on to, to make the point that white privilege, okay, we've heard that phrase, really means having basic human rights, okay, like good schools, clean water, access to health care. Um, she also makes the big note that not all white people benefit from that, okay, because there are a lot of – so when the government quits spending, okay, to benefit the common good, when the government stops spending dollars to assist people to have better lives and instead enriches – only those who are at the top of the heap. So take note of um, the tax cut that Donald Trump and the Republicans enacted in uh, late 2017. Take note of that because what that did is it only enriched people. It did not enrich the country. Forget about this trickle-down analysis. That's just a bunch of crap. And so when you do that, okay, not all, all the white, not all white colored people benefit, only some, okay? But boy, you know, uh, the people that we're sure that aren't going to benefit are the people that don't have white skin color. So what Heather McGee proposes is the idea of, of solidarity benefits, not a we against them kind of mentality, but instead trying to reshape the conversation so that everyone understands that if we raise up everyone across racial lines, there will be higher wages, better schools. There'll be those kinds of things for all people, not just for people who don't have white color skin. And um, she goes on to share this story about Bridget, a white um, color woman who was a fast food worker in Kansas City. Um, and Bridget, she's quoting what Bridget had to say. She, Bridget's a mother of three she had been doing fast food for like 10 years, um, that job. And this is what Bridget said to Heather McGee, quote, I had been fed this whole line of those immigrant workers are coming over here and stealing our jobs, not paying taxes, committing crimes and causing problems, Bridget admitted, you know, us against them. 
Soon after she began organizing, that would be organizing for a $15 raise, the, co- the cross-racial moment had won a convert because in that organizing, she came to find other people like her. They didn't have white skin, but they were struggling too, struggling to raise a family on you know fast food worker jobs. And this is what Bridget um, went on to say. Quote, in order for us to come up, it's not a matter of me coming up and them staying down, she said. It's the matter of in order for me to come up, they have to come up too. Because honestly, as long as we're divided, we're conquered. Wonderful insight. Absolutely. And so check out this book um, by Heather McGee. It's a name that you're going you're to hear her name repeatedly. There was just another... Um, so today is the day before Friday. There was a, uh, I just talked to you about a opinion piece that was in Sunday, but today the New York times highlighted her book. So you're going to hear more about her as well. Okay. And in case you, uh, one last piece, in case you had any question about how the deck is stacked, there's this piece, the story that came out of, uh, I think I'm looking at ABC News 7 out of, um, out of um, San Francisco, a story by uh, Jennifer Glover, uh, dated February 12, 2021, that tells the story about a family in Marin County, uh, um, Paul Austin and his wife, Tanisha Tate Austin, they're black, okay, who'd bought a home in 2016 in Marin County. Uh, they uh, they paid, uh, I, I don't know, they paid a lot of money for the home, uh, and uh, about $800,000. And then they put into that home another several hundred thousand, three or $400,000 worth of improvements to the home. I mean, they just top to bottom redid it. And then it came to point where the Austins wanted to go get a home equity loan. All right. So they wanted to go refinance the house, get a home equity loan. And so, of course, you've got to go through an appraisal. And what happened was the appraiser who came was an older white color woman. She appraised the house for barely $100,000 more than what the Austins paid for it. This is after putting in three or $400,000 of improvement. So she appraised the house only for $989,000. Um, and the Austins were like, how can this be? This is not, no, no, no. We have, cha- we have changed this house dramatically. They convinced their lender to um, do a second appraisal. But before that second appraisal happened, uh, the Austins um, spoke to some friends, and one of those friends was a white-color woman. And she said, because the Austins believed that the first appraiser was biased against them because the Austins are black, the appraiser was white-color. So the f- white-color friend says, all right, I'll help you out. I'm going to become uh, Tanisha, and I'm and I'm. We're going to remove all your pictures, family pictures from the house. We're going to put my. I'm going to bring my family pictures over. We're going to put them in the house, and we'll just you know, that, that's all we're going to do. Okay. And wouldn't you know, the home came in with the second appraiser for five hundred thousand dollars more. Um, for uh, 500000 more than the first appraiser appraised the house. <laughs> All because the second appraiser thought that it was white-colored people owning the house. 
Discrimination and marginalization are real, listeners. It happens every day. We need to be aware of this. And we need to resist it. And that includes white-colored people speaking up and saying, this is wrong. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to do my C block and talk with you a little bit about a story. Thanks. And we're back on AM 950. I hope you're enjoying this Ellie's Talking Head show. I try not to do them because I think it's so much more interesting when I have a guest. But, um, hey, I tried. So in my C block here, I just want to share a very quick story with you. Um, Last weekend, I had to go um, do a couple of errands, including going grocery shopping. I got to a – I parked my car in a – what? is a strip mall, not only with a grocery store, but there's a liquor store there and there's a number of other stores. And as I was, I got to the sidewalk. Okay. So, you know, I parked the car in the middle of the parking lot. And as I got to the sidewalk, there was a woman standing there and she had, she was holding a box that had some items from the liquor store in it. One of those open boxes. It wasn't one of the huge boxes, it was like a half box, but she was holding it. But she, but she had on a walking cast that went from her foot all the way up to her knee. It's one of those soft walking casts. And she was standing there at the edge of the sidewalk, and it was clear to me she was trying to figure out how she was going to get to her car, open the car door with the, while holding this box and not losing you know, her footing and maybe hurting herself again. So I saw her, and I went up to her, and I said, what do you want, what do you want some help? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, okay, can I... Can I help you? Uh, where I said, let me take the box, which I grabbed, and where's your car? And the car was not very far away. So I went, put the put the box in the open the door, put the box in the front seat of the passenger seat, and and uh, she made her way. She didn't want her help, but she made her way to the door of the the driver's door of the car. And I and I said, okay, there you go. Have a great day. Thought that was it. Um, about twenty minutes later, I'm in the grocery store, and I get to the chips and pop aisle. And who do I see there but this woman, again, um, with a cart with some soda and some other things in it. And I said, oh, there you are again. How are you? And smiled at her. And she gave me kind of a half smile back. And I just said, well, how's your day going? And she told me, so she said something that I did not expect. She said, not very good. She said, my mother died yesterday. She was 99 years old. And of course, at that moment, I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. You have my you know, condolences. And then she went on to tell me that she was having a very difficult time, that it was just she, she just had no energy, that it was tough. And, and she was shopping because there were people coming to her mother's house in an hour or whatever it was. Uh, to start going through mother's effects and she needed to, she was getting stuff to, you know, to be a good hostess, to thank the people, you know, to feed them. 
um, uh, and libate them while they were, you know, um, doing that work. And she was just like, I, I just don't know, you know, what I can do. And I, I mean, my immediate reaction was, well, you need to take care of yourself. That's most important. Don't worry. I'm sure these people will understand. Just take care of yourself. And I grabbed her, her wrist at that point, And I said to her, I said, I'm just so sorry about the loss of your mother, but, but I hope I, I wish you good memories of her. And it was at that point that she did smile. And she said, oh, my, she said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I have so many good memories. And you could tell that she was fighting back the tears. And she grabbed my hand at that point. You know, and I mean, and I, I asked, is there anything I can do for you? And she said, no, no, that she was, that was okay. And she'd be all right. And, you know, at that point, you know, I want to be respectful. And I just kind of moved on and did my shopping. Now, I don't tell you this story to think anything great about Ellie Krug, okay? Uh, no, not at all, okay? I mean, I share this story because we are a society of storytellers and story listeners. And this is literally how we learn what we should do. I mean, I hear stories from other people. I'm like, oh, I had not thought that maybe this was the way that things should be approached. And I've got to tell you, I was shocked. Just, hey, how are you? And then next thing I hear is that her mother had died. And, and, I, and the other reason I share this with you is that we never, ever know, ever, what people are going through. We never know that. Unless we're willing to take the risk and ask, how are you? And be willing to get an honest answer back. I, for one, am usually willing to do all that. Okay? Not, you know, I have my moments, but... And so, but this is what it means to care about each other. Even strangers, this is what it means to care. And everyone, we have to do a whole lot more of this than what we've been doing. We do. Okay, that's the end of my show. Hey, it's already over. What do you know? I hope you've enjoyed it. Big thanks to my producer, Patrick. You are wonderful. You did a great job. I've been making Patrick's job a little bit more challenging today, folks. You don't know that, but um, I've given him a couple of reasons to work hard today. And thank you, Patrick, for understanding. To you, my listeners, I hope you like this show. Okay? Tell others about it. Share the podcast. Go on uh, KTNF AM 950. Share the podcast. Let them know about my work as a human trying to spread the word about the power of human compassion, both for ourselves and for others. And go out and do something good for someone this week. Change the world in just a little way. And I'll be back next week. Thanks so very much. Bye-bye.